Chapter nine, be a learner. If we see challenges as opportunities for learning, if we engage our curiosity whenever we're presented with an obstacle, we're more likely to find solutions. The habit and disposition help us not just survive adversity, but thrive in the aftermath. My first year of teaching wasn't the hardest. It was my sixth when I helped start a school and taught a new grade and content area. I felt competent in the fundamentals of teaching, but it was as if I was standing on a clear plateau, having ascended a foggy mountain, and the steep terrain of what I didn't know yet as a teacher lay ahead of me. Seeing the gap between the knowledge set I possessed and what I aspired to do for my students demoralized me. I was only ever tempted to quit teaching when I felt I wasn't serving children well. By my sixth year, I had reached my limits of my ability to figure out how to improve as a teacher and I started contemplating other careers. Then I met Liz Simmons, a coach who worked for a nonprofit that supported new schools, reminded me of my Jewish grandmother, and saved me as a teacher. Liz supported me in three ways that no one ever had in my teaching career. First, Liz demonstrated unbanished, unwavering curiosity about me, about what I was doing in the classroom and about my students. She sat at the table in my classroom, listening and taking copious notes, and in response to my often long reflections, would say something like, that's so interesting. She'd pause and think and then ask another question like, why do you suspect they're doing that? Her curiosity pre-meeting pre each word, her questions unlock insights, connections, and possibilities for action in my mind. Liz also demonstrated an unbashed, unwavering belief in me. She held up a mirror and helped me see myself in new ways, giving me language to appreciate my skills, strengths, disposition, and orientation as a teacher. Her constant encouragement and affirmation unlocked my self-confidence. The final way Liz helped me, uh, the final way Liz helped keep me in the field of education was introducing me to action research, or what some people term classroom inquiry. Discovering inquiry about was like tumbling down a rabbit hole. Yet, unlike Alice, I found that everything made more sense to me and I felt better than ever as a teacher. I found energy, empowerment, and a deep understanding of my students. I uncovered solution to perplexing problems. Everything, my kids, my future, even my condemned portable classroom looked different after I discovered the inquiry process. What happens in this magical land of inquiry, you're wondering? To start, I incessantly asked questions like, I wonder why this might be happening. I wonder what would happen if I tried. There was no judgment here in this land, not towards myself or the kids or the outcome. Regardless of what transpired every day, my response became, oh, that's interesting. And then I'd peel back layers on a mission of understanding. In the inquiry world, I discovered that the answers vexing problems were often right in front of me, within the little bodies in my room, within my own mind, and with accessible resources. I understood that I was on a quest for answers, but also that once I found an answer, more questions would be uncovered because the quest is eternal. The answer to one question unlocked another question, but the joy of learning, the delight of growth, and the unending pursuit of questions propelled me forward. I lost myself in the questions and in the data that surfaced. Every day I found myself wondering, what might happen tomorrow if I? And then I jot down my ideas, observation, and especially the insights, because those piled up. And I think, finally, I figured some stuff out. I'm getting better as a teacher. Then I started seeing the data. First, it made a a subtle appearance as a shift in my students' attitude, engagement, and effort, which I documented religiously on sticky notes. Lois begged for another five-minute time of reading. Sandra said she loves books with strong female characters. Then in June, I did a reading assessment and thought, wow, they made a lot of growth this year. And in August, I got the mother of all data sets. I administered the standardized test that, pre that previous spring and had said to my kids, I wish you didn't have to take this, but it is important in some ways. Just try your very best. And the data showed that my kids had made several years of reading growth in one year.
The numbers attracted attention from the district. How did she do that? People asked. Inquiry, I said. The numbers were validating and useful, but what mattered most was that in August, as I returned to start my seventh year of teaching, I felt good. I knew how to continue learning to be a better teacher. I felt confident that I could serve my kids and I was excited about the next year, which turned out to be my best year ever. That was where Liz took me in a year and I seriously contemplated leaving education. She guided me to a place where I could be a learner again and find answer to questions that kept me up at night. This chapter explores these questions. How do we learn? How do we change? How do we improve? How do we create the conditions in which we can learn? To answer these questions, you'll consider how we use time and manage our energy, which are essential resources for learning. And of course, we'll explore the emotional experiences that run parallel to these questions. Learning and its correlating disposition of curiosity open a path of resilience that sometimes is overlooked. By the time you're roughly halfway through the school year, an interesting thing can happen. You may feel more energized. You may see evidence of all your hard work. Your kids appear to be learning. You also feel a boost of confidence because you're making it through the year. You might feel increasing clarity about what you're doing and why, which might help you feel committed to teaching. By mid-year, you might feel ecstatic about the rest of the year and even start having thoughts about next year, what you'll repeat or even do differently. Mid-year is an optimal time to reflect your, on yourself as a learner. And if it isn't what's happening for you in the middle of the year, if you don't feel energized or hopeful or clear, fear not. It might happen later in the year or during the following year. Although some patterns are predictable, we can also... We are also all on our own schedule and timeline. This chapter will still be applicable and useful. Learn about learning so that you can learn. Learning about learning is an, is an empowering starting point. With a deep understanding of your learning development, you'll grow more effectively. In order to better understand this process, let's look at two useful frameworks, the conscious competent ladder and the mind gap. The Conscious Competent Ladder, Understanding the Journey of Learning. Think about something you really wanted to learn in your life. Maybe something fun, such as a sport or a hobby. Choose something that you have tackled and in which you've gained some competence. What happened as you started learning it? What was your journey like? Once I wanted to learn to make pottery, so I signed up for a class. I had assumed there was a skill involved, but I had no idea how hard it was to throw a pot. Week after week, I hunched over my wobbly blob of wet clay, trying to wrangle it into a shape, watching it slide off the wheel or split across the middle, while my self-talk incessantly muttered, this is so hard. I'm so bad at this. Everyone else seems to get it faster than me. I suck. That inner dialogue reminded me how scary and exhausting it is to learn something new, which made me kinder and more patient with students that semester. And because I am persistent, I finished the pottery class with two short, thick bowls that I still treasure 15 years later. Emotions accompany our learning experiences. Initially, when we set out to learn something, we may not appreciate how much we need to learn. When we begin to see the breadth and depth of this new subject or skill, we can become disheartened or even give up. If we have a sense of emotion, we're likely to feel as we move through the learning process, we'll be better equipped to manage them along the journey. The Conscious Competence Ladder, figure 9.1, is a framework that helps us understand four stages of learning. The model highlights the factors that affect our thinking as we learn a new skill, consciousness, awareness, and skill level, competence. It identifies four levels that we move through as we build confidence in a new skill. First level, unconscious incompetence. At this stage, we don't know what we have. At this stage, we don't know that we don't have a skill or that we need to learn it. We are blissfully ignorant and our confidence exceeds our abilities. Our task on this rung is to figure out what skills we need to learn. Conscious incompetence, second stage. At this stage, we know that we don't have the skills we're trying to require, 
we realize that others are much more competent and that they can easily do things that make us struggle. We can lose confidence at this stage or give up on our learning. This is when we most need to manage discomfort, fear, and anxiety, and to boost our confidence. Conscious competence, stage three. On this rung, we know that we have the skills we have to work to attain. As we put our knowledge and skill set into regular practice, we gain more confidence. We still need to concentrate when we perform these skills, but as we get more practice and experiences, these activities become increasingly automatic. We need to use these skills as often as possible in order to move into the next stage. Unconscious competence, stage four. At this level, we don't know that we have the skills. We use our new skills effortlessly and perform tasks without conscious effort. We are confident of success. In order to keep growing, we need to teach these newly acquired skills to others. This deepens our understanding of the material and keeps our skills finely tuned. Teaching the skills can also be rewarding. Be warned, we can go backwards down the ladder if we don't regularly use our skills. The conscious competence ladder explicitly names core emotions in the learning process. The normalization and predictability of this experience can help us stay motivated and manage our expectations. When you're on the consciously incompetent rung, reassure yourself that even though learning as a skill is difficult and frustrating, it will feel easier one day. And when you're unconsciously competent, remember to value the skills that you've gained and be patient with those who are still learning them. Fixed versus growth mindset. Another concept of to, another concept to understand is that of mindset. Carol Dweck's 2006 book, Mindset, has become a core text in education for good reasons. When we hold a fixed mindset, we assume that intelligence and talent are fixed at birth. We believe that we are either good at something or bad at it, that our character, intelligence, and creative ability are static and unchangeable. Success is the affirmation of that inherent intelligence. This pushes us to strive for success and avoid failure at all costs as a way to maintain a sense of being smart or skilled. With a fixed mindset, we're unable to take criticism, we avoid challenge, and we give up early. With a growth mindset, we assume that intelligence and talent can go up or down. A growth mindset thrives on challenges and sees failure not as evidence of a lack of intelligence, but as motivation to grow and stretch abilities. Holding a growth mindset creates a passion for learning rather than a hunger for approval. Failure becomes an opportunity to learn. A growth mindset is the mindset of resilience. As Dweck explains, we hide deficiencies instead of overcoming them. The passion for stretching yourself and sticking to it, especially when it's not going well, is the hallmark of a growth mindset. This is the mindset that allows people to thrive during some of the most challenging times in their lives. These mindsets offer profoundly different ways to approach what we can't do. With a growth mindset, we curiously explore discrepancies between what we want to do and what we are able to do. This search reveals path for improvement. Understanding the concept of mindset and becoming aware of your own is another tool on the journey to resilience. Mind the gap, identifying learning needs. My first attempt at making sushi didn't go well. It was barely edible. The rice was too gummy, the seaweed was burned, and the portions of the fish and fillings were unbalanced, and the rolls were, were disintegrated. I knew I had failed, and the expression on my husband's face confirmed it. But instead of feeling ashamed, I wondered, why did I fail? What would I need to do differently the next time? What do I need to learn to be able to make sushi? The fact that I was even willing to envision a next time comes from the concept I've been exposed to years earlier. I've expanded on this concept and named it Mind the Gap. The title is a reminder to mind or pay attention to the space between a desired skill and current ability. This framework proposes that we can 
parse into six groups and the things interfering with our ability to do something. This helps us get a this helps us get clear on what we need to learn and offers insight into entry points to start that learning. Figure 9.2, Mind the Gap, depicts this concept and exhibit 9.1, the gaps defined, offers a description of each group and an example in a school context. When I apply this framework to my sushi disaster, I see that I have a number of gaps in different areas. I didn't have a good knife, which is why the fish and rolls shredded when I tried to slice them. My oven was broken and got too hot, which is why the seaweed burned. I was pressed for time and simultaneously trying to do laundry. And I felt impatient and frustrated because the whole thing took so long. I also didn't know what kind of rice to use. A capacity gap might have been at the root of my inability to produce a plate of detectable rolls, but a gap in one area can also produce a larger gap in another because gaps are often interconnected. It can be hard to identify an original gap. Exhibit 9.1, the gaps defined. Skill gap, the ability to execute the technical elements of a task can be the application of knowledge. Example, getting the whole class quiet or breaking down the steps to solving complex equations. A knowledge gap, the theoretical or practical understanding of a subject can also be information. Examples, knowing discussion strategies or knowing grade level standards. A capacity gap, the time and resources to do something can also be emotional and physical capacity. Example, having time to call students' parents, having books to differentiate learning. A will gap, the desire, intrinsic emotion, motivation, passion, or commitment usually has an emotional tone. Examples, loving the work, wanting to serve the community. A cultural competence gap, the ability to understand, appreciate, and interact with people from cultures or belief systems different from your own. The skill to navigate cross-cultural differences. Example, recognizing assets in students who come from different cultural backgrounds validating student backgrounds through the selection of curriculum. And last, the emotional intelligence gap, the ability to be aware of, manage, and express one's emotions, the ability to recognize, empathize with, and manage other people's emotions. For example, the awareness of feeling anxious when an administrator enters the class, the ability to connect with a difficult student. when gaps show up in teaching. Now let's consider this framework in the school context. As I do a quick survey of my gaps as a novice teacher, I conclude the following. Number one, my ability to teach vocabulary effectively was due to a knowledge gap about best practices. Number two, my inability to execute smooth routines and procedures was due to a knowledge gap about which routines I needed and I lacked the skills of organization. Number three, my inability to have an organized classroom was due to the capacity gap. I just didn't have time. Number four, my inability to work with a grade level partner teacher was due to an emotional intelligence gap. I didn't know how to manage my impatience with him. Here's another example of applying mind the gap in a school context. Deanna was a new teacher I coached who stepped in as a long-term sub when the eighth grade English teacher resigned three months into the year. When I observed Deanna in her first week, I was concerned about what I saw. She had poor classroom management. Kids were off task for more time than they were engaged in learning, and she seemed frazzled and nervous. I began intensively coaching her on management, routines, and procedures. However, when I observed her implementing the strategies we discussed, she struggled to execute them. I assumed she needed more modeling, so I demonstrated the strategy in her first period class 
and then observed her trying to copy what I had done in her second period class. This didn't work either. When we met after school, I asked Deanna what she thought was going on. I just can't talk with as much confidence as you, she said. I know you told me to speak loudly, but it's more than that. I can talk loud, but not with confidence. Ah, I thought, confidence is an emotion. I have been coaching Deanna on her skills, and although she did have skill gaps, other gaps exacerbated that skill gap. Deanna has shown commitment to her class. I was fairly certain she didn't have the will gap. I was also sure that she had the capacity. She only taught four periods, which gave her three periods of planning, coaching, and observing other teachers. She had all the materials she needed. I knew that Deanna had knowledge gaps, but she was a brand new teacher, so it was inevitable. But what I hadn't thought about was her emotions. Tell me about what you feel when you're teaching. Deanna sighed. Well, I guess this is normal, but most of the time I'm nervous that I'm not doing a good job, that my principal will regret hiring me, and that I'm not really meant for teaching. This is all I've wanted to do since I was in the first grade, and I'm scared that I'll fail. Yes, these are normal feelings, I affirmed. Think about the moment when you opened your classroom door and you're getting kids settled into a warm-up activity. How do you feel then? Nervous, Deanna said. I'm afraid they won't stop talking and that I'll lose control and that they'll stage a rebellion. She chuckled to herself self-consciously. I appreciate your honesty, I said. So would you say that you experienced some fear? Deanna groaned. Ha, that's so embarrassing. I guess so. That's wrong, isn't it? I shouldn't be afraid of my students. It's honest, I said. What do you think it is about them that makes you afraid? First, they're all taller than me. And I don't understand them sometimes, she said. They're so much louder than the kids I went to school with. They dress so different. They talk different. I wanted to teach in Oakland, but I didn't realize that I'd feel so out of place. The wheels clicked in my mind. Deanna was dealing with a cultural competency gap. Although she was a person of color, as were all of her students, Deanna didn't share the cultural background of her kids that she had been raised in an upper middle class community by two university professors. She didn't know how to interpret the students' verbal or nonverbal cues, which fueled an emotional intelligence gap. I shifted my coaching approach to simultaneously address her cultural competence and give her new skills. While we worked on things like how to give clear instructions and how to interpret eye contact or lack thereof, Deanna's confidence grew. One day, as we talked directly about this, she said, so it's not that I'm a bad teacher. I just have a cultural competency, competency gap. And it's possible that one day I feel comfortable and at ease with my kids. Yes, I nodded. That's good news then, she said. And after a while, Deanna did feel comfortable with her kids. And one step at a time over the course of some years, she developed the competencies necessary to be an effective teacher. The hierarchy and interconnectedness of gaps. As I mentioned earlier, gaps are interconnected. When we're struggling to do something, we need to understand the gap size in each domain and then consider whether there's a root cause gap. Sometimes, however, the gaps are interconnected in a way that is not linear. There could be several simultaneous root gaps. This framework isn't a science. It's a tool to provoke insight. In presenting this concept as a pyramid, as in figure 9.2, I'm suggesting a hierarchy. Emotional intelligence and cultural competence are the foundations for all other areas. A skill gap can create an EI gap, but if our EI gap isn't solid, then we can't truly close gaps in other areas. It's true that a gap can blur within an emotional intelligence gap. In a way, will is an emotion, but I've kept it separate because I think too often as we ascribe a will gap to someone, a child or adult, when that person is experiencing is an emotion such as fear or shame, if that person lacks strategies to deal with these feelings, the inability to do something appears 
as a will gap, but it really isn't. If we can shift from thinking about something as a will gap to thinking about it as an emotional intelligence gap, there are more options for action. In schools, whether with adults or with kids, in class or in a PD session, we focus on the up, uppermost buckets, skill and knowledge. Sometimes we address will, trying to cultivate a sense of urgency or stoking the flames of mission and purpose. Capacity is also sometimes attended to, but often overlooked, as is evidence anytime district leaders roll out seven new initiatives in one year and then get frustrated that programs aren't implemented with fidelity when there just isn't the time to do so. The foundational domains, emotional competence and cultural competence, are those must are those most neglected. When was the last time you attended a PD session on how to calm your nerves when a high school senior in their last semester of school cusses you out? Or how to deal with a first grader who can't stop crying every morning when her mom drops her off? Or how to shift the discomfort you experience when your little group of English language learners speak to each other in Spanish and you don't understand what they're saying? or how to deal with low intensity conflict in your department that makes every single meeting you, you attend excruciating. If we attend to these fundamental competencies, we'd make more growth, quicker growth in developing our skills and knowledge. How to use this framework. Use this framework as a resource to push you in the stance of a learner into the place of curiosity devoid of judgment and into a growth mindset. We all have gaps. We've had gaps for as long as we lived because no person alive who has the ability to do everything. Gaps are indicators that we can still learn and grow. We can learn to delight in our gaps, to see them with joy and clarity. This framework is not about deficit thinking, not about finding weaknesses, it's about recognizing our true potential and examining what lies in the way of fulfilling it. It's not a tool for self-judgment or criticism. If you find yourself struggling to use this tool in a way that feels useful, explore your feelings about this framework. This framework is also intended to lay a roadmap for action. As you gain clarity on your gaps, you can gain insight into the actions you can take to close those gaps. You may need to do some more investigation about what you suspect are your gaps. Do I really have a knowledge gaps? Or do I know how to explain them to the kids in a way that they would understand? Let this framework help you anchor yourself in a place of a learner. Chapter nine, part two. Sad Sundays and how to stop having them. There may have been a number of moments in this book when you thought, I'd like to do that, but I don't have the time. In order to be a learner, to do inquiry, or to read, or to write, or to meet with colleagues and talk about what you're reading, you'll need to come to terms with how you spend your time. I'm including this section for two reasons. First, managing your time better will allow you more opportunities to learn, and second, most of us have a knowledge and skill gap when it comes to how we manage our time. Let's address the knowledge gap. For many years, I dreaded Sunday. I barely enjoyed Saturday because I knew that day of drudgery followed. Laundry, groceries, grading, lessons planning. Week after week, I'd leave school on a Friday hauling away bags full of student journals, curriculum guides, young adult novels, and a professional text or two that I'd start on a Saturday morning, maybe as I drank my coffee or while sitting in the park. Yet how many times did these canvas sacks spend the weekend sitting inside the front door untouched? How many Mondays did I pick up those bags and pledge that next weekend I would read all those young adult novels for the upcoming round of literature circles? I didn't even spend Sundays doing fun, relaxing, or other productive things. Often I'd lay on the couch with my green lesson planner on the coffee table next to me, and I moaned and groaned a lot, and dozed. And then I'd find some urgent thing to take care of, such as trimming my cat's nails. I usually did laundry and planned a lesson or two, but on Monday morning I'd wake up to feelings of dread, and I'd head off to school feeling unprepared and disappointed in myself. 
Yet a series of moments over the course of a year or two shifted my weekend and weekday routines. I grew deeply tired of my procrastination and relieved it's like and I deeply was I grew deeply tired of my procrastination and relived it slightly with small tweaks here or there. And after a while, those tweaks added up to a major time makeover. By my seventh year as a teacher, I had a solid routine every day after school that included reviewing formative assessments I've done that day and tweaking my plans for the next day. On Friday afternoons, as soon as kids were out the door, I'd spend two or three hours planning for the following week. I was tired, but extremely focused during these hours. By 6 p.m. at the latest, I left school carrying maybe one book and met my husband at our favorite sushi restaurant for our regular Friday night dinner. On Sundays, sometimes I did more prep, fine-tuning lessons, gathering another resource, or refining a long-term unit plan. By 5 o'clock on Sunday, all work had ended, and I spent the evening reading fiction, watching movies, seeing friends, or preparing a good meal. I'd wake up on Monday feeling rejuvenated and prepared for the week. You don't have to hate Sundays or dread Mondays or perpetually go to school unprepared. You can do what you need to do, have more energy, and live with 24 hours in a day. Let's talk about habits and behaviors that will help you manage your time and energy so that you are open on your weekends and they are up for rejuvenation. Keep a time log. One year at my principal's urging, I kept a time log. I'd been working 70 hours a week and although I knew I was using time ineffectively, I couldn't see why or what to change. I diligently kept my log for a week and was shocked by what I saw. Here is how I spent my time and the conclusions I drew. Number one, I wasn't doing the most important things when I had the most energy. I'd arrive at school 90 minutes before the kids and I spent most of that time doing mindless busy work. Number two, I did a number of tasks that I could ask parent volunteers and school staff to do. They could make copies, fold packets, organize books, and so on. I just needed to get organized and asked. Number three, I underestimated how long I needed for some tasks. After school, I'd intend to get through five tasks, but the first took almost the entire time, so I never felt satisfied with what I accomplished. Number four, I didn't prioritize my work and therefore didn't make thoughtful decisions about how to tackle my workload. I gravitated towards doing less meaningful tasks, such as cutting out images for a bulletin board, because I avoided doing things I didn't know how to do, like scoring writing assignments. I was distracted easily because I felt so overwhelmed. Completing this time log was sobering. I felt embarrassed as I talked to my principal about what I had learned but I got some clarity on how to change my behaviors. If you feel as though you don't have enough time to do what you want to do, the first question you ask is, where is my time actually going? Not, where do you think it's going, but actually, where it's going. I figured out that you'd need to document how you spend your hours. Write down what you do for every hour of the day for a week. If you don't do this, you won't know which are the following time and energy management suggestions to implement. Manage your time. As a new and novice teacher, I wish I'd had the summary in Exhibit 9.2 and an understanding of those habits. I often thought that I was just a procrastinator or disorganized or slow to get things done. I had spun all kinds of stories about my relationship to time. What I see now, however, is that all I needed was some basic technical tips on managing my time. What follows are time management strategies I found most useful and relevant for educators. Confront the planning fallacy. We have a tendency to underestimate the time it takes to complete a task and to overestimate how much time we have left to finish a task. Let's say it's December 1st and grades are due on December 14th. You have weeks left. You tell yourself, grading won't take me long this year, but you're not accounting for the final projects that you need to assess before you get the grades or for the hours you'll spend trying to locate that one student's final project or the time it'll take you to input the grades and deal with the inevitable technical challenges of the grading program. 
So on the weekend before they're due, you have to spend 26 hours getting them done. A time log helps you figure out how long things actually take as opposed to your optimistic underestimates so that you can make realistic plans. Because I often fall into this, I double the amount of time I think something will take me. If I finish earlier, I feel successful and accomplished. Think you'll need 10 minutes this evening to call a couple of parents and share some good news about their kid? Allocate 20 minutes. Chunk it. Break large projects into small, easier to complete steps so that your mind can focus on one thing at a time. If you struggle with procrastination, this is especially helpful. List each competent of writing report cards and each time you finish them, check it off and soak in the satisfaction of your accomplishment. Make to-do lists. Make a to-do list, prioritize the items on it and determine the length of time for each task. Be realistic. Allocate time in your calendar for each item. Obey the calendar. Don't wait for the mood to strike to print out rubrics. Just enter it into your calendar. Thursday, 3.30 to 4, print rubrics. Commit to your calendar. Also schedule time on your calendar for breaks, lunch, and open time to address the things that need to be taken care of. Things always pop up. Anticipate that you'll need the time each week and those things won't throw off your plans. Use focusing mechanisms. When you have a task that requires concentration, identify things that help you stay focused. For example, leave your phone in another room or put it on do not disturb, disconnect from the internet, turn notifications off on your computer, and or only respond to email during two predetermined times during the day. When I sit down to do cognitively challenge or tedious work, I put my phone on do not disturb and set a timer for 45 minutes. During that time, I forbid myself from moving or doing anything else. When the timer goes off, I take a five to 10 minute break and then I set it again. This routine took some getting used to, but now that my mind is well-trained and is now well-behaved. After around three hours of work, I take a longer break and return for a few more hours. All of my books have been written in 45 minute increments. Stop multitasking. Multitasking severely undermines productivity. A temporary shift in attention from one task to another, stopping to answer an email or take a phone call, increases the amount of time necessary to finish the primary task by as much as 25%. Furthermore, when we respond to an email, check Facebook, or get distracted by another obstacle, we feel an instant hit of gratification. Our brain actually releases dopamine. This may be why for some, Compulsively checking social media or email can feel addictive. Manage your energy. There's a subtle difference between managing time and managing energy. Some productivity experts suggest that our focus should be entirely on managing energy, and the two are interconnected. I found that time management strategies that I had just shared to be helpful. Here are some further strategies that appear to be for time management, but will also help you manage your energy. The first one, pause and renew. Every 90 to 20 minutes, our bodies need a short period of recovery. When you start yawning, feeling restless, or having difficulty concentrating, take a break for a few minutes and disconnect completely. Talk to a colleague about something other than work. Listen to a song that you love. Walk around the yard a couple of times or up and down a set of stairs. Meditation and deep breathing are also renewal strategies. The length of time is less important than the quality of the activity you engage in. And doing this every 90 to 20 minutes will help you sustain your energy for the day. Get the hardest stuff done first. When you have the option, do the most important and most cognitively demanding work first in the morning. Your brain is the sharpest and most disciplined in the two to four hours after you wake up. Teachers, I know you don't have a lot of say over your school schedule, but see what happens if you set a goal to get weekend planning and prep done on a Saturday or Sunday morning. It might get done much faster if you save it for Sunday afternoon. Principles, given that you have more flexibility with your schedule, save your email, busy work, calls, and meetings for the afternoon, and do the mentally taxing work in the morning. Enlist company. 
Just having friends physically nearby can push you towards productivity. Distractible people get more done when there is someone else there, even if that person isn't coaching or assisting them. So when you're facing a task that is dull or difficult, such as organizing your classroom, grading heaps of essays, or inputting data, ask a friend or colleague to keep you company. Celebrate small wins. Acknowledge yourself for the smallest success. Progress is incredibly motivating. As you read through the stacks of student journals, keep the piles of finished journals in front of you as evidence of your success. Every time you finish one, take 10 seconds, close your eyes, and tell yourself what a good job you're doing and how focused you are. This recharges your emotional batteries and makes the next journal easier to pick up. When you acquire time and energy habits, you'll be amazed at how much better you feel physically and emotionally every day. You'll find yourself with more energy to dedicate to the activities I've suggested in this book, self-care, reflection, and introspection, involvement in the community, and learning. You'll find that weekends become opportunities for rejuvenation and for building immunity to the stressors of the work week. To cultivate resilience, you need to internalize dozens of behaviors, and sometimes the gap between knowing about these things and doing them is simply one of technical knowledge and skills. Acknowledging context on the conditions for learning. Throughout this chapter, I encourage you to take charge of your learning, to close the gaps between what you aspire to do and your current abilities. However, because we don't exist in a vacuum, it's critical to acknowledge the optimal conditions in which we learn. On the time need for learning. It will take you about 10,000 hours to deliberate practice to become a master at something as complex as teaching. If you're wondering how many years it is, it's between five to seven school years. But after grinding away at hours alone won't make you a masterful teacher because practice alone doesn't make perfect. Practice with feedback, correction, and refinement helps you get better. There's no such thing as perfect. Educators need instructional and leadership coaches because we require these 10,000 hours of practice and feedback. Coaches facilitate practice, create opportunities for feedback, cultivate self-reflection, and provide guidance so that we don't keep repeating the same ineffective actions year after year. Although effective, instructional coaching is not the only way to do this. It's a well-researched and proven mechanism for teacher improvement. Even beyond the 10,000 hours, coaching is a way for professionals to continue refining their skills. After all, even professional athletes at the top of their game have coaches. Learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them all yourself. Eleanor Roosevelt. What your brain needs. There are some basic biological requirements in order for human brains to maximize learning. Let this note serve as a reminder that your brain needs oxygen. So take a walk around the block. And glucose. I need a handful of almonds or dried fruit to function optimally and let the learning sink in. Brains also need nutrients, including amino acids. In all that I've learned about nutrition and optimal brain functioning, the role of and the need for amino acids has been the most enlightening. Talk to a nutritionist or do some online research or chat with a worker at your local health store about supplements such as 5-HTP, DLPA, and SAMI. Taking the amino acid supplement can do wonders for your emotional concentration, sleep, mood, and more. Of course, I'm not a nutritionist and everyone's different, so do your own research. Your brain might thank you. The need for learning organization. A learning organization is essentially what it sounds like, an organization in which everyone is learning, the teachers, the principals, the counselors, the kids, and so on. Individual teachers reach high level of functioning when they work in extraordinary learning organizations. Schools thrive when they are running as a learning organization. Rate your agreement with the following statements on a scale of one to five. Five being full of agreement as they apply to your working environment and then total your ratings. Number one, I can disagree with colleagues or supervisors. I can ask any type of question. One to five. I am encouraged to take risks and try new things. And I do so. 
I can express a divergent opinion with colleagues and supervisors. I'm provided with time to pause, thoughtfully reflect on my process and learn from my experiences. I get feedback on my work from multiple sources. I share what I learn with others and outside my group and organization. Leaders make their learning visible and model the practices of a learner. If your total is between 28 and 35, you work in a strong learning organization. If your total is between 20 and 27, you work in an emerging learning organization. Anything lower than 20 means that your organization is a weak learning organization. In my book, The Art of Coaching Teams, and in the Onward Workbook, you'll find a more extensive list of indicators of a learning organization. A dive into shame. Shame shuts down the learning circuitry in your brain. It makes us feel like hiding or disappearing, recoiling from taking risks or asking questions. Shame may be the most malignant of all emotions with nothing beneficial to offer. I'm hoping that this brief discussion on shame might provoke reflection on its presence in your life. If you feel subject, if you suspect that shame plays a role in your happiness and well-being, I hope you find the support to dissipate it. High levels of shame will profoundly undermine your ability to learn and to cultivate resilience. Shame is a feeling that you are somehow wrong, defective, inadequate, and not good enough. You can experience it to different degrees with embarrassment on one end of the continuum and chronic shame at the other when you feel the very core of you is bad. Guilt and shame are not the same. We feel guilt when we recognize that we may have negatively affected someone else. It's a feeling of remorse about our behavior as opposed to a feeling about ourselves. Guilt can produce a sense of responsibility and can motivate us to change our behaviors, making it more useful than shame. If you feel or see in someone else a lot of anger or blame, shame may be hidden below those feelings. Projecting anger or blame onto someone else is an ineffective way to rid ourselves of shame. In comparison, Anger is more comfortable of an emotion than shame. Blaming others might help us feel as though we've regained some control, but there is a high cost to ourselves and to our relationships when we dwell in anger and blame. Shame-prone individuals are also vulnerable to drug and alcohol abuse, which helps mask the feeling of shame. As a teacher and a coach, I've seen shame in far too many little and big people. I've coached educators who work themselves to the bone who viciously are critical of themselves and whose expectations for perfection erode relationships, health, and joy. There was a little space for learning when there was so much fear and shame. Even using a refined coaching strategies, I had limited impact because the shame ran so deep. Intensive persuasive shame usually has its origins in childhood. If you've experienced a great deal of shame, please seek professional help. The disposition, curiosity. My grandmother was curious. She epitomized the disposition for me and she was a remarkably resilient person. In the last decades of her life, she traveled around the world to Ecuador, Zimbabwe, China, and Romania, often on music and dance tours. When she was 85 and in very good health, she exclaimed, there are just too many good books still to read. I can't die yet. She lived for 98 years, reading until the very end. Curiosity is almost the opposite of shame. It's a disposition that makes us want to investigate, listen, ask questions, and take risks. It can make us question our assumptions about people and look beyond stereotypes. Curious people are attracted to new people and ideas. Curiosity might even be the elixir for longevity because it produces such a yearning and quest for knowledge about our inner experience in the world around us. Everyone possesses curiosity. It's an innate disposition, but people differ according to the strength 
of their curiosity and their willingness to act on it. You can turn up the dial on your curiosity by asking open-ended questions. I wonder how bricks are made. I wonder why Johnny can't read. I wonder why I can get so irritated when my kids forget their supplies. I wonder how many questions I can ask today. Learners embrace this natural curious disposition and view obstacles and challenges as opportunity for growth. Anytime we ask ourselves, what can I learn from this moment, from this challenge, our perception of experience changes. When you are curious, you are open to ideas and pursue solutions, trying almost anything and asking for help along the way. That's what resilient people do. And often it's curiosity that is compelling these actions. Curiosity has many benefits. It can help us see with fresh eyes and access more of our brain for problem solving. It naturally reduces our fears and can help us break out of old unhealthy behaviors. It can also make us literally feel good triggering brain to release dopamine. Dopamine, a natural opiate, also plays a role in enhancing the connections between cells that are involved in learning. As a result, curiosity helps us learn better and retain information. There is an upward spiraling relationship between curiosity, knowledge, and resilience. The more we learn, the more we want to learn, and the better we are at managing challenges, the more curious we become, and so on. A beginner's mind. Imagine yourself standing in your classroom right now, taking a learning stance. Maybe you're on the edge of the room looking out at your students. Maybe your head is tilted slightly and resting on your fist. And maybe your expression is open and quizzical. You're not confused. You're in a learner stance. When you take this stance, you transform into a superhero and your power is to question. When Gabriel crumbles up his paper and throws it across the room, you think, he hasn't done that in a month. I wonder what's going on with him today. When Eli is absent for the fifth time in two weeks, but hasn't seemed ill, you wonder what's going on. When you get tired of grading journals, you wonder whether students are tired of writing them. Curiosity and taking a learner stance leads us to asking bigger, wiser questions and to solving problems. When the superintendent makes a surprise visit to your classroom and it's during a moment that you're not your best as a teacher, you wonder how you can help him get a more robust look at what happens in your class. When your principal tells you that Susie's mom has requested a meeting between the three of you after school that day, you think, could this be an opportunity to talk about how Susie's behavior has been changing? There's a subtle distinction between curiosity and problem solving, one that's worth honoring, but also not necessarily to always be noticed. Remember, resiliency is cultivated in the space between stimulus and the response. In that space, we can ask questions and reconnect with our beginner mind, for that is where possibility, opportunity, and hope reside. I trust you will know a lot about learning. After all, you are an educator. Give yourself permission to keep learning every day, in every moment.